فيكم قلب بس قول مرحبا بعدين انا بعطيك انت طيب عزيز طيب انا بس بدي اعمل ترحيب سريع فيكم وبال مرحبا بالسكاكينيك سعيد دائما انه مؤسسه الدراسات تعمل نشاط عندنا في المركز وهذا بيسعدنا دائما انا بس بدي اعمل كثير سريع اقول لكم اطفوا موبايلاتكم او اتاكد انها مطفيه واذا احتجتوا واذا احتجتوا انكم تردوا على التليفون فبقول لكم انزلوا على تحت لانه هون على الدرج كل شيء بنسمعه وشغله سريعه بقول لكم اياها يوم الاحد في كثير ندوه بنحب نخبركم عنها اللي هي اسمها حين يعطش الغرباء عن الاداره الصهيونيه للمياه وتخريب طبيعه فلسطين هي كانت صبيه مهندسه اسمها لما شحاده من حيفا حتيجي من حيفا تعمل محاضره وبنحب انكم تكونوا معنا بالمحاضره وهلا برجع بترك الكلمه لسليم يوم الاحد على الساعه 6 كونوا معنا شكرا شكرا يا زلمه شكرا لاستقبالنا واستيعابنا. We have two events tonight, one in English and one in Arabic. I want to start with the special launching of the last two issues of the Jerusalem Quarterly with our guest speaker Roberto Mazza. I want to welcome you all. In the next part, um, we have the launching of uh, our new book written by Munir Fakhreddin, myself, Al Awqaf Wal Mulkiyat Maqdisi, which is a book on uh, Jerusalem properties and endowments. And we will start soon after this discussion. Um, I'm happy to welcome you all. I want uh, to make a special uh, welcome for uh, Luisa Morgantini, the former Vice President of the European Parliament, who is with us tonight, and many dear guests who came from all over the country in this terrible weather. Welcome. And your wife. And my wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, we start by um, this special launch of issues number 75 and 76 of the Jerusalem Quarterly. Number 75 is guest edited by Roberto Mazza uh, and the special theme is Policing Imprisonment and Securitization Palestine. Um, I'm happy to say by the way that all the issues are available only for tonight, free of charge. You can have the last four issues, but not the book. The book will be sold. <laughs> so if please you buy, help. If you buy the book, you get the four. <laughs> no. <laughs> please help yourself. Uh, number 76, by the way, uh, is the first color cover, colored cover, and it has a beautiful a watercolor painting by the great, great Palestinian artist Sophie Hadabi, uh, who was born a uh, hundred years ago. 
and it's a, a beautiful watercolors of anemones in the hinterland of Jerusalem with the Haram Sharif on the top. Roberto is a dear old friend. He's not old, but he's an old friend of mine. He is professor of Middle East history at Limerick University in Ireland and is the author of many, many works on the history of Jerusalem, uh, the latest of which is the Jerusalem during the First World War, which is the diary of the uh, Spanish consul, Count de Balibar, who was one of the few European uh, members of the diplomatic corps who remained in Jerusalem, who, and he collaborated, uh, who collaborated is not the right term, but Roberto can tell us more about it. He uh, worked with Jamal Pasha during the war and the Fourth Army. He is also the author, most recently, of a very interesting essay on Ronald Storrs and the Pro-Jerusalem Society, which appeared in a special volume called Ordinary Jerusalem. So, without further ado, I welcome Roberto, and uh, I'll have him speak uh, briefly about this special issue. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, apologies. My voice is pretty bad. I got uh, cold and flu due to the weather, which is very funny. I never get sick in Ireland, but I got sick in Palestine. So fair enough. Same, same. Same, perfect. And well, uh, it, it's very interesting to have so many guests also speaking Italian. So really, at least for me, is uh, an honor actually to have Mr. Uh, Morgantini here. I mean, he's a very important uh, person, at least to me, uh, politically speaking. For all of us. And I guess for all of us here, yeah, perfectly said. Uh, I just want to share with you a few things about this particular issue dedicated to policing. Uh, first of all, to think about police. Uh, you know, when I when I start talking about this issue with Salim and then with Alex Winder, obviously, you know, another editor of the uh, Jerusalem Quarterly, we realized that it was going to be controversial and not easy. Uh, police is something that we need, we may cherish, we hate, uh, we have to understand. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated, uh, uh, not just concept, but also body of people. And, and that's why we chose to uh, open a call for papers, uh, and at the same time trying to invite some authors and see who would reply to us, and what kind of material we would receive. And I want to just focus on two things. I chose to ask a good friend of mine from America who has no relation whatsoever with Palestine, Israel, but he's a good political scientist and he's working on police in America, so you know, the idea of sheriffs and police departments, to reflect upon something that I call the, and I, and I apologize because I, I can't even say that in English properly, the defetization. So the idea that police had become uh, fetishism. In other words, we realized that uh, we think, particularly in the West, that with more police, we're going to solve the problems. And this is probably many, you know, some of the Italians here would agree with me that it's becoming an issue, you know, with some of the right wing, very populist government, that, okay, let's employ more police, and everybody, everybody's going to be safer, and everybody's going to live better. 
Oh, but obviously that's problematic. It's not true. There's no correlation between the two uh, uh, ideas. Besides, what we noticed, uh, being in conversation with Casey Lafrance, who uh, one of the contributors here, that this applies only to uh, upper classes. Essentially, upper classes are eager to spend more money, uh, giving more money to governments, and say, okay, now we want to be safer. So it's okay that you invest in more police. But they don't, they're not really interested in the process, what's going to happen to the people, and whether they're actually more police, meaning more safety and security for everyone. That brings me to the article by Yor uh, uh, Alon. It's a very interesting article about uh, sort of the uh, establishment of the Mandate Police Corps and sort of the historical uh, progression uh, through the 1920s, 30s, after 1948. And obviously one of the arguments made there is that there's a continuity. The Israeli police in our context uh, was not born out of the blue, but picked up from the British, who already created their own ideas about policing. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the British used a form of colonial police. Something that struck me uh, since I moved to Ireland only a few years ago is that there's a lot of uh, uh, correlations between Palestine and Israel, not only politically nowadays, but the very fact that a lot of Irish police force served in Palestine, and at the same time the British essentially experimented uh, their tactics uh, with the Irish first. The idea was like, if it works with the Irish, then of course it's going to work in the rest of the uh, British Empire. Now, this is what just one aspect. Of course, the picture is bigger. The British Empire also employed Indians, South Africans, Australians, so it's much more complex. And the article of Yovalon uh, really shows the complexities. But also brings into the picture the issue of police as a body of human beings. The police officer is someone who eventually is paid by the government to do a job. But it's going back home in the evening. He's someone who has relationship with other people. And I think in these articles, we really can see policing in different aspects. And one that really struck me and made me think about how do we relate to police is the fact that police becomes human beings, becomes men, in the modern context also women, who have relationship with uh, citizens, uh, other people, other police officers, and at the same time they have to fight against this, uh, you know, dichotomy. You know, when the uh, police officers, when they wear the uniforms, they have to follow certain rules, or at least this is what we're supposed to do. Uh, at the same time, you know, they have to sometimes fight back their humanity. Which is something problematic, and particularly there's an article here by Shimrit uh, Lee uh, where she's talking about corporate mediations. The fact that police officers are humans, right? So nowadays there is a trend, and again, particularly in America, certainly in Israel, to sell essentially uh, to corporate uh, so private institutions the role of the police uh, officers. Governments, both in America and, and it's argued here also in Israel, but also in other countries, probably around the Middle East and uh, as well as in Europe, 
are now selling the, the job of police officers to private companies. Private companies are efficient, they're well paid, they don't care too much about humanity. It's not about the uh, sort of the, you know, the relationship established by a, a regular cop going around the neighborhoods, getting to know people, getting to establish you know, the bad guys, the good guys, but try to sort of uh, sort out problems through dialogue first. So now we have this issue of corporate mediations where uh, private companies are essentially hired to do the same job as the police should do. But obviously governments came to realize that there are problems. So some, these are some of the teams that are developed in the uh, in the uh, in the issue, and, and I think that uh, it really helps us to understand the complexities. That is not just uh, black and white, whether we like or not the police, uh, but there's more behind that. And uh, also, as I said at the beginning, uh, this issue wanted and still wants to be controversial. Wants to talk about the fact that, uh, as I mentioned in the very beginning of, of the. Uh, uh, of the issue in the editorial, that in general, you know, humans, the very moment they gather around a community, in Greek police, you know, hence the word police, uh, they felt that they needed a sense of security. So, of course, we need a body of people who can guarantee our safety and security. But at the same time, there's a lot of questions to be asked. How do we make sure that they're not above the law? How do we make sure that these people are actually serving the communities? So the whole issue is really around these teams and uh, you know, try to answer questions, uh, whether historically, sociologically, anthropologically, or politically, uh, around what is police? What are the problems about police in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in Israel? Of course, uh, you know, the, the idea was to start with a general article uh, talking about police, talking about the problems, but of course then focusing on, on the region, of course, that the Jerusalem quarterly covers. And, uh, and again, uh, there's a lot of things that can be said uh, and there was a risk to become either too much political, maybe to uh, take one road. Uh, and I remember having a conversation with Alex that we wanted to make sure that we would give a fair picture. And again, there are some of the articles that are really showing how, uh, other than the political discourse, we also have to focus a little bit on who are the individuals that are part of the police corps. Um, Again, the difference between duty and social sort of participation. Uh, again, as I said earlier, police officer goes back home as a family, as friends, he's part of the community. So we have also to distinguish between the two. Uh, I, I guess I just want to make one last point and then I stop here and be very happy to answer you know questions and see where if we want to have a debate about it. Uh, very much about the, uh, again, sort of the legacy. With Alex, we were trying to establish a, a, the point that it would be wrong, however, to suggest that there is a continuity in a, in a sense that everything led to the other. What is important and what we wanted to make sure that is important throughout the issue is that whether it was under the Ottomans, during the British, or 
we didn't really cover Jordanian Jerusalem. Unfortunately, we didn't find anyone working on that uh, period of time, uh, whether under, again, uh, the Israeli rule or under the Palestinian Authority. But the, everything is dictated by human choice and agency. In other words, we wanted to make sure that the readers would have the feeling that there is no causality, in a sense that it's not that one thing triggers the other, triggers the other, that nothing is inevitable. But everything is made of choices, that whether organizations, individuals, have their own choices, so they can decide whether to take one action or not. And that to us was very important, because again, we don't want to give you the, the sense that yeah, there's a legacy, and then of course the Israeli picked it up, and they're doing like that, and then the Palestinian Authority, and then someone else in the future, or the Americans or whoever. Really, it's an issue of choices. It's an issue of individuals in key position, in a specific time, in a specific location, and they made those choices. I'll stop here, and I'll be very happy to answer questions or Thank comments. You. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Roberto. I, uh... Um, I want to make two comments about the issue which struck me. First was the very interesting work of Richard Cahill on uh, Taggart, Charles Taggart and the Taggart Fords. Uh, most of the people here know of the uh, Muqata. Uh, Muqata. Uh, and the work, uh, but they don't know who's behind it. Uh, an Irish, British, counterinsurgency expert who came from uh, Calcutta, who was in charge of squalling the Bengali rebellion in India, and he was brought by the British in order to establish a security regime after the rebellion in 1936. And he is, was an engineer and a counterinsurgency police expert who designed and oversaw the building of the 42 Taggart forts in Palestine, and he also began to build a wall, electrified wall between Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine. And his, uh, his biography is proposed here by um, Richard Cahill, the Taggart police fortresses in British Mandate Palestine. The second uh, point is an omission. I found that there was no, uh, nothing on brigandage. Uh, especially since Alex Winder, one of the editors, has a beautiful piece on Abu Jilde. And here we're talking about the rebellion uh, which preceded uh, 36, in which uh, there were a number of uh, uh, highway robbers, uh, and some of them were, had one foot in the rebellion and one foot in robbery. And Abu Jilde is, is a very important example of this. It's a very great pity that Alex did not contribute his piece on Abu Jilde here. Uh, but altogether, I thought it was a very interesting <coughs> volume. Um, please go ahead if you want to make a comment or ask a question uh, on, on this particular issue. Please, yes. Palestine is quite uh, particular because you have uh, the Palestinian police and you have the Israeli police. The Israeli police is supposed to be in, on the Israeli roads, the Palestinian police on the Palestinian 
robots, and then there are robots for Christmas, and Christmas, and Christmas, and Christmas, and Christmas, and those areas near the wall, near the borders. So maybe it would have been interesting to, to look also at this aspect, but there is no police. In fact, you know, these areas, uh, this doesn't go. My friend lives uh, near a checkpoint, and when it got robbed, the robbers went into the house. They, the Palestinian police had to phone the Israelis to ask permission to go and see what happened there. So maybe this adds some layers of complication in the relationship. And for a Palestinian, well, no, an adopted Palestinian. As you said at the beginning, we don't particularly like police, I think normal people particularly like police. But here we have some police we like more than other police. <laughs> you know, so maybe that would have been interesting to look at. Yeah. Yeah, there was another, uh, is that all? Yeah, there was another, we, we, we were hoping also to cover uh, particularly areas like the Bedouin areas, but it's actually hard to find contributors, meaning that it's still, it sounds like a very uh, important topic, and it certainly is, but um, it's not really covered. Uh, you know, many scholars try to stay away from, uh, uh, maybe historically it's, it's easier, but when it comes to contemporary issues, there's a lot of people staying away from it. Uh, I mean, I, I was just in touch with uh, uh, Neve Gordon, if he could suggest uh, some people, but even he was like, uh, you know, I don't really know anyone, and he's working a lot on, you know, sort of these kind of issues, but uh, you, you have a point. There is, it's a gray area for the police, but it's also a gray area for people studying. I think it's, it's spot on, definitely. Well, uh, in the second issue, 76, there's a coverage of the whole issue of policing Khan al-Ahmar, which is a, a seam line. So maybe it covers part of that commission. Okay, Tfadal Ya Ustaz Yazid. I'm interested in your role as an editor. The way you sort of knitted through the different articles that we combined all the contradictory parts of the issues. Uh, in particular, I have a question on the humanization of these and uh, how did you deal with it as an editor in terms of, uh, you know, uh, putting violence as a human condition and the way you normalize it and you try to show the, uh, you try to show the human side of a violent uh, uh, structure and a violent regime at certain point. So how did you deal with that as an editor? It's a very good question, and Alex Winder should be here because he is the one who actually did most of the job on this. Uh, as I said, you know, it, when we started looking at the articles, we wanted really to uh, bring the idea of a humanization of the police, and we really started with your example of Taggart. Uh, we all talk about tiger fortresses, you know, you may see them around. Sometimes I drive often uh, close to Latrun, there's one there, and you know, it's like, okay, it's a tiger fortress, but who's the man, right? And, and really we started looking at, with that individual, we have information, we know his background, and, and we really started looking at uh, trying to humanize the individual. Uh, but 
it's not easy because again, uh, as was mentioned earlier, in the end the police is often to us is uh, they, right? It becomes this institution which we just point the finger. Uh, so it's not easy, and, and it was really, really the hardest part of, of this issue. Try to find out how do we, we make this institution uh, also human beings. But we also accepted that some of the uh, contributors, uh, you know, they kept talking about the institution rather than the individuals. Because again, it's, it's not a dichotomy, it's not one versus the other but it's the individual part of a bigger agency. And I think that was what we really tried to do. And that's why, again, as I said earlier, I really, it was like out of the blue, thinking about uh, a friend, someone I know working on uh, uh, American police. I said, can you please help us? Uh, because we all, I mean, the, the very first article is dealing essentially with uh, uh, the police under the Obama administration and a comparison with the police under the current regime in Israel, uh, you know, looking at Charlottesville uh, incidents. So we really started from there and from Tagger, try to make these people human, whether we like it or not. Even though, you know, the example of the American police are, for the most part, negative. It's American police shooting civilians. Still, we wanted to look behind. It's not the police; it's an individual. And we want to understand why they're shooting black people, right? And, and that was the, really the uh, the part that brought us, me and Alex, together, trying to think: what, where are we want? Where do we want to go with this? So, really good question. Thank you. Uh, you see, there is a very interesting British uh, series called Happy Man. Uh, which actually deals, have you seen it? Which actually deals with the policewoman who is dealing with a very, very hard community with drug and with rape and what have you. But I think it succeeds in doing that, where she's playing her role as a policewoman, but at the same time her relationship with her community as a human being and relating and her, she herself or her daughter. So I think that uh, that is one of the most successful uh, programs, at least that I saw, which deals with this duality of being a policewoman. Yeah, and uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is the difference between the police in Britain and the police in America. There was an article that I read which was really amazing, in which the, Brit the Americans sent the, some of the police force to Britain to understand how could the British police control the situation without guns. And the article was incredible because they could not conceive of controlling without shooting. And the whole article was in the New York Times, but it shows a mentality, how we were brought up and... Uh... Uh, thank you. Charles, please. Just, uh, <coughs> thank you. I wanted to ask about uh, the institutionalization of police forces of some units that are dedicated or specialized in the task, uh, some sort of tasks relating to community relations. Um, in other words, uh, the, a lot of what we observe in America is an uh, insularity of police force culture. Uh, and uh, the value of some, some of us have known police. And you, you know, it's quite remarkable how in very polarized settings, the police culture, the institutional culture, is really insular. And if the 
as a source of threat and, uh, and that is to be managed. They don't see themselves as public servants by a long shot. So the question is basically whether or not you found any institutional articulations of a community relations mission that was meant to overcome the tendency to insularity that can occur very easily. And I certainly have to understand how its origins would be existent in the history of Palestinian history. Yes. <coughs> now, I have a question, but basically also another comment. Um, the British uh, colonial police in Palestine have recruited also Palestinians and, and Jews to their force. Now, have you uh, looked at the issue of uh, how the, uh, the British mandate police operated with this uh, ethnic, uh, two ethnic uh, uh, clashing groups uh, together? Um, now, in, in, in uh, the rebellion of 1936-39, um, we know that some of the Palestinian police have defected from uh, the British police and joined uh, the, the rebels. The same thing happened in 1947-48, where uh, um, uh, Palestinian police have actually defected from the, from the British uh, mandate police. And actually, some of them became the leaders of, uh, of the Palestinian resistance uh, in the police. Um, the resistance against the, uh, the, uh, the Zionist forces. Now, have you looked at documentary uh, uh, material of dealing with, with, with all these um, um, uh, issues? So, we have one last comment. So, but I would like to, uh, to listen to the answer to this, because it's very interesting. I wanted also to go back to the meeting on that. Well, but just since I forget. I had a question. Yeah, go ahead. So, no, I am very interested in understanding, for example, how, when we're speaking about the cotton, during the day they are fish pushing there, and then they go and they become new. But how many times they became also told? Because, for example, there are very big stories about uh, women being killed by a police uh, uh, being beaten and so on. So, there is also this fact that when they go home, they don't become human, they just become the family in the same kind of oppressive. Uh, uh, and it's very interesting, the question of brigantine that uh, Salim was saying, because for example, in Italy, with a lot of his, no, historical fact where the bright briganti became also militant and active, so it is also a very important point. What are they called in Italian? Briganti. Briganti, yes. Okay, uh, we will have Roberto respond, then we will move to yeah. Munir and Nazmi. I just want to start with you because I think it answers a few comments. First of all, it's not really my area of expertise, but, and, and we were really hoping to get two scholars on this issue, but for their personal reasons, they couldn't contribute. Uh, John Knight, uh, who is a Brit, but used to work in America, is now back in Europe, and Matthew Hughes, that both worked on the British police. And they really worked on the sort of issues, 1936, you know, the division. But I want to answer from another perspective, from another scholar who's working on uh, culture and leisure in Haifa during the British mandate. And it's a striking work because what she's showing is that, as I mentioned earlier, there were divisions, 
And Haifa was a, in a clearly divided city, and of course you have uh, police officers who are both uh, Arabs and Jews, and, and amongst the Arabs you have the Christians, and, and of course the Muslims. But it's interesting because what she showed is that they all met in the same clubs, same coffee shops, right after work. So they might have that divisions perhaps during the time, during the daytime about the job or visions, but when it came to leisure, they all went to the same beaches, the same clubs, and the same, they shared the leisure arena. So it's a very interesting, and I think it shows the complexity of these figures, which is, which is true. It's another complexity, it's another layer. I mean, not necessarily all the police officers They went to the same beaches, not beaches. And we don't know much about it. It, it. There's an article here talking about uh, policing the intimates. Uh, we're still far away, at least for me, uh, as an historian of this region, from history of the uh, intimate, history of the emotions. We don't really have enough sources. But probably from an anthropological or sociological point of view, you know, working on the contemporary, that would be very interesting to discover. You know, to what extent uh, police officers go home and they're really able to drop the uniform, they're not projecting uh, the uniform, so the duty into the family, which I suspect is very common, probably. I'm sure there's a lot of studies done on America on that, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Going to, to the point of, of America, I'll be very quick, uh, of the idea of uh, uh, sort of police culture and community. Uh, I'm trying to give you an example. I spend a lot of time uh, when I come here in Beersheba, okay, so Beersheba, which is a very interesting city. Uh, used to be obviously an Ottoman city, an Arab city. After, after 1948, it's uh, an Israeli city, but the largest majority of inhabitants are uh, Israeli Jews, of course, and Arabic is well spread. Plus, you have a bigger uh, Bedouin community, so Arabic is well spread around. I noticed that there's a lot of police officers just chatting around. They then not only they speak Arabic, but they have to learn Russian. Because then you had an influx of around 50,000 Russians, and it, it's the only way to interact. So I don't say it's official, but I think it became unofficially accepted that in order to have a, a form of coexistence and dialogue, then one had to learn each other's language. But it's not certainly a policy. And I don't think it's even cultivated. It's more like left with the single people. And I know for a fact that there's a good body of Bedouins police officers in Beersheba. So again, it's really left with individuals, it's choices, as I said earlier. But I don't think here there's a policy to create a, a police culture of uh, uh, integration or community, uh, you know, like you may have in, in other countries where they tend to integrate more black people or you know people coming from China and so try to integrate them. So I think it is more left with uh, individuals. Thank you. Thank you very much.